Dear friends, our podcast is all about love, and that includes brotherly love. Right now, history has taken yet another dark turn, and people in Ukraine, across Russia, and all over Europe are suffering. Our hearts are with you all. For those who have had to flee their homes, for those who fear for their families' lives and well-being, our hearts are with you. War is horrific, and more often than not, it is the everyday people who end up bearing the price. We wish for nothing more than an end to all this fighting and suffering, and for all nations to live in peace. We produced and scheduled this episode before the crisis in Europe started, and even though the episode has nothing to do with it, we have so many friends from that beautiful region, we just felt a need to acknowledge what is in so many of our hearts during this heavy time. In the end, we all must place our faith in love and trust that love wins over all things. Welcome to How to Love Forever. In this episode, we interview director of the STI project, Janelle Marie Pierce. Janelle teaches us the difference between an STI and an STD. We learn how many Americans are likely to have an STI at this very moment. And we see once again how important it is to have honest and courageous communication. All coming up right, right now. Hi. I'm Marco. And I'm Heather. We invite you on a journey of discovery as we explore techniques, tools, and inspiration to better our love lives and our sex lives. Join us as we travel the world, seeking out the stories that can help improve how we do romance and relationships. Come with us as we discover how, how to, to love, love forever. forever. Hiya, love bunnies. Welcome to How to Love Forever, the podcast that explores all aspects of relationships, romance, and sexuality. My name is Heather. And I'm Marco. You know, most people can't imagine being the one who suffers an infection or an injury. We tend to consider ourselves impermeable, unassailable by death or disease. We think we will live forever in a perfect state until some tragedy comes around and proves us wrong. Mm-hmm. And when we become a statistic of any kind, we become a different person. Suddenly we realize calamity can strike from anywhere. And oftentimes it's just dumb luck we weren't hit with something before now. Mm. It could be a loss of a limb, or a loss of one of our faculties, or our mind, God forbid. These things are some of the worst case scenarios. But what if the thing that attacks you isn't very obvious, but it is laden with massive social stigma? What if you're stricken with something invisible, but you think it'll redefine you in the eyes of a judgmental society? Some illness that society dictates now renders you unwanted, untouchable, unworthy. Ugh, and then what now? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't ever wish these things on anyone, of course, but they do happen. This is the world of STIs. It's a dimension of human sexuality that is fraught with fears, misinformation, and stigmas uttered in hushed judgments. It's a world that no one wants to talk about. But if you're a person with a love life, or sometimes even a social life, it's a world that exists, and you have a chance to become part of it. And the world is changing. 
Not only are there more remedies and treatments available than ever before, there's also a new kind of warrior fighting a fight on this social front. STI advocacy groups are gaining traction around the country and the world, and they aim to dismantle the shame around this admittedly touchy topic. They want to bring it into the light of day to help dispel the stigma, spread awareness, and facilitate better healing from the damage that can be done to an unfortunate individual by society as much as by the illness itself. Today we talk with one of these warriors. She is Janelle Marie Pierce, herself a veteran of this type of common infection, and she is spearheading the fight against both the disease and the taboo. We had an enlightening conversation with her, and we feel it is relevant to all those who love, regardless of whether or not you're one of the unlucky, which, by the way, are a lot more common than you think. How common? Well, listen in and find out. Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone in between and beyond, our conversation with Janelle Marie Pierce of the STI Project. Hey, Janelle, welcome to the show. Welcome, Janelle. Hello, thank you so much for having me today, y'all. It is fantastic to have you. A little bit about Janelle. Uh, you are the executive director, like I said, of the SDI Project, an adjunct professor and a spokesperson for PositiveSingles.com. And uh, as being an STI Plus certified sexuality educator, she's been dismantling stigma by reclaiming STI narratives through awareness, education, and acceptance since 2012. Hey, happy decaversary. Yeah, no kidding. That's a long yes. time. Yes. A whole decade, right? My whole life has revolved around STIs, <laughs> STDs for an entire an entire decade. It's kind of surreal. A little more than, but yeah, mm-hmm. a long time. That's amazing, though. So as I was going through your website, uh, you know, getting ready for our conversation today, it was just telling me how when you were 16, you ended up getting an STI. And then how did that... It seems to have affected your entire life trajectory. A little bit, I'm huh? Not wrong. No, not at all. You're not wrong. Initially, it didn't. I mean, it's interesting because I contracted genital herpes when I was 16 years old. And for years, mm. I was mired in the stigma that's associated with STIs. And it, and it very much did define me. And I felt like that was representative of who I was and who I was going to be in all my relationships, etc. henceforward. But then... Fast forward like 10 or so years, and it slowly became a very tertiary. It was in the background. I very rarely thought about it. It didn't impact my relationships, my professional abilities, my just my life as a whole. And it started to kind of come full circle and say like, wait a minute, I was really convinced that this was going to be defining of my entire life, that this was going to... Um, change everything. It was going to impact all my relationships. It was going to impede them, not only just impact, but in a negative way. And it didn't. And so then I thought, I need to reconcile this. Like this, the difference between these two very opposite ideas of like, this is now going to end all relationships. It's going to be this negative stain on my whole life to where it really didn't impact my relationships in my life at all. How do I, why does that exist? And why does that, and I can't be the only one who's felt this way about this and how this, this stigma and the misconceptions, they don't match up. They don't add up to someone's real true lived experience. And that's when, right. then I did an overhaul with my life and said, now I want to make this my whole mission, my whole professional career to work on normalizing STIs, sexual health, the conversation around those things, etc. So now, of course, it very much did 
it ended up changing the trajectory of my life and it is very much a defining thing, but only because I've chosen to make it so because I'm so public about that whole experience and all the work that I do around it. Fantastic. Our entire mission around here is to demystify, to destigmatize, and to open up conversation about all aspects of human sexuality and relationships and all of that stuff. So you're in the right place. Welcome. I mean, and y'all know, like the less or the more that you talk about something, the less something feels uncomfortable and awkward, Mm -hmm. the more we realize how alike we are and how many shared experiences we truly have uh, across all generations and demographics and all of the ways in which we categorize people, we are really less different than we than we assume, but especially when we're mm-hmm. talking around, around sex and sexual health. So how old were you when you decided to shift your trajectory? Like, when did you have that kind of mind-opening aha moment? Yes, that's a good question. I was 29, so at the tail end of the whole 20s, and which is such a defining part of our life, you know, it really does. Mm-hmm. And some of those relationships carry forward for forever. The ones that we cultivate in our twenties. And, and that's true for me too. And yeah, 29, 29, when I launched the ST, it's the STI project now, but it was the STD project. So we've updated our language and moved through the last decade with the times, with the changes that came up, came about. For the listeners, what is the difference really between an STI and an STD? That's such a good question. There's really, it's nuance mostly, and it's more medical. Um, to some extent, some folks, the, and the more current term is STI. And before STI was STD, and that's the one that most people are familiar with. But before STD, it was mm-hmm. venereal disease. And, and each of those different categories had certain and a certain number of infections that were included. All STIs, sexually transmitted infection versus sexually mm-hmm. transmitted disease, all STIs. STIs are preceded, or I'm sorry, all STDs are preceded by an STI. And so that even complicates it. What it, what I really mean is STIs, an infection, you could have an infection and without any signs or symptoms of that infection. And COVID's a really good example. It taught us about the word asymptomatic. You can have be an asymptomatic carrier. You could have an infection, oh, yeah. transmit it to others. And the same exists for sexually transmitted infections. Most people are asymptomatic and have no idea that they have one. One of the reasons why it's so stigmatized and we feel so isolated because we don't realize how common it is and how likely it is that someone we know and love and care and respect also has one or has had one. So STI is more inclusive. Some people feel like it's a little less stigmatizing. I would actually push back against that because I believe what stigmatizes the infection itself is not so much that it is an infection because infections are a really common part of being a human, mm-hmm. but it's the that how it was transmitted and contracted. It's the sexual part. So a rose by any other name would still smell as, as sweet, still look as beautiful, and, you know, same for a flaming pile of doo-doo. So <laughs> it, ideally, no one wants an infection. Like, I get it. Nobody no. wants an STI. So there is going to, be going to be some stigma associated with it, but the level of stigma is what is problematic. And so we're just slowly trying to update language a little bit and include, especially the asymptomatic part to come full circle is like, that's what's really important here in that education, that that piece is that it's really common to not have a clue that you have an infection and it's really common to have an infection. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Thank you. And also on your website, you were talking about the fact that like yeast infections and vaginosis are actually considered STIs. And I was talking with Marco and he's like, but 
they're not sexually transmitted for the most part. So how are they considered to be sexually transmitted? Is it just because they're in the sexual organs? Because, I mean, one would say reproductive organs instead, so, right? Please, please enlighten me. That's a really great question. And I get a lot of pushback about that because there are infections that are in this gray area. And really, any the only thing that denotes something as sexually transmitted is how that individual contracted that particular infection at that point in their body. So mm. you can have vaginosis is a broad umbrella term that encompasses different kinds of infections. They can be a different kinds of pathogens. So they can be bacterial, parasitic, fungal. That's all vaginosis. And certain mm. ones in that category, like you said, a yeast infection, it can be passed amongst partners. Um, but then like a bacterial vaginosis infection is a common infection in people who have vulvas vaginas. And it is just an imbalance of healthy bacteria that naturally exists in the vagina to start. So if it becomes imbalanced and there's a, a proliferation of one bacteria over another and it's no longer in balance, you can have bacterial vaginosis. A yeast infection is essentially the same thing, but yeast infections can be transmitted. However, in that big category of vaginosis includes trichomonas, which trichomonas is a little bit more commonly accepted and understood as a sexually transmitted infection. So it just depends on the type of infection we're talking about, which actual pathogen we're talking about, and how it was transmitted mm. for that individual. And things like mono or cytomegalovirus, those are seen in children, scabies, uh, a lot. And, and depending on how that child contracted it, which is typically not sexually transmitted, thank goodness, is um, then it's not considered an STI. So the only thing that denotes it an STI is just how that person contracted it. And there are certain infections that are almost always contracted sexually and some that are in this like gray area where it depends on the person and it depends on the infection and in the circumstance. Okay. Gotcha. Well, there it is. Where does the U.S. rank globally in like number of cases per population and how how is it different in other cultures as far as the uh Maybe like the stigmas like, and the and the uh, and the attitudes, social attitudes about it would be concerned. Like open conversations right. about sex and about STI. In your studies How and in your work, have here? you found any evidence of differences for that? Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's such a great question because every year the CDC comes out with their report on the new number of STIs that um, year over year, so new infections per year. And what's really interesting is it's usually a high number, like twenty. 20 million. I think the last report was 20 million or 21 million. I'd have to look back at wow. that was like 2019. I don't think they've come out with one since because of the um, pandemic has halted some of that data. Is that worldwide or is that just for the U.S., right? Only in the U.S. Oh, okay. Yeah. So only in the U.S. They come out with this new report every year. And, and for the last, I want to say five years, I'd have to look back maybe even more, that number has been increasing hmm. um, by at least a million new infections each year. Now, the fine print on the CDC data, because what happens is the CDC has kind of a, they also have a fiscal uh, motivation behind releasing this data and having it being widely published because they want to get funding for their programming to reduce and prevent and treat. Mo problems, mo money. Well, right. And so they want the reports or they want at least the public to get 
get behind the the federal dollars that are going to be supporting their programming. And so they don't necessarily stop the messaging that comes across, but the messaging gets wildly sensationalized. It gets turned into like, this is this epidemic mm. and <laughs> STIs are increasing year over year. And if you look at the fine print, and this is the, true with any research, any data, any survey, you want to discern like, okay, yes, there are more new infections since last year that were reported, but is that because we're testing more people? Is that because, and this was before the pandemic, because testing has gone down since. So Mm -hmm. I will clarify that, but that was 2019's data and it was higher than 2018 versus 17, 16 and so on. And um, at least for the last five years that it had been growing. And I haven't seen the new report come out, the 2020 data. And things have started to change as a result because the pandemic really changed our testing. But when it was increasing, when we were saying like these numbers are sensationalized and we were using these, the media was having these very big headlines like, you know, basically we're getting so many more STIs and this is all bad and we're all in trouble and our health is at risk, et cetera. This fear mongering was happening. Mm -hmm. But and of course, there's a motivation behind the CDC publishing this information and not necessarily stopping the way in which it gets communicated. But the fine print will talk about like, yeah, like I said, is it more testing that's happening? Are, has our population grown to that extent to where people within the category who could contract an STI, um, young adults, adults, etc. Is that a larger number than before because our population increases year over year? So is right. that percent representative mm-hmm. of just a flat population increase? So you really have to look at the numbers thoughtfully and say like, is this is very worrisome. And of course, we want to reduce the overall number, but those are just new infections. That's not existing infections. So mm. the number of people who are living in the U.S. with an STI is, is estimated to be somewhere between 65 and 70 million mm. at any point in time. And that's not the new infections year over year. That's like long-term and or forever infections. Mm-hmm. And so like to then full circle to kind of answer your question about how is this different than in other countries, other places around the world. We really do a fantastical job of publicizing this information, sensationalizing it, making people very worried about it. But then we don't actually do a good job at all, a very poor job of communicating amongst our partners, finding ways in which that are practical and that we can reduce risk, but also feel empowered about our bodies. And so we're not actually talking about it. We're talking about it in the media. We talk about it in late night television and comedy, and it's the butt of jokes, and it's a way in which to demean someone's character. But we're not actually using this in any kind of practical or relevant way in our relationships. And we see Mm -hmm. in other, some other cultures, not all, there's still a lot of stigma, almost almost worldwide. But there are some other cultures that, that safer sex conversations, that, that talking about our sexuality in general is less taboo. Mm-hmm. Like we use sex to sell everything. We sensationalize it in the media, like the examples that I was talking about, the CDC's report. And for anywhere from toothpaste to tennis shoes and towels, we're using sex to sell these things into market. Cars, pizza, insurance, yeah, all of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> yes. Put someone, put someone who's deemed and perceived as sexy, or you know, make some innuendos, and that's exactly what you see, and that is common. That is, I mean, we don't even bat an eye at this anymore, and but we're still not talking about it from a practical perspective, and we just don't have a mm-hmm. lot of good examples, and that's not modeled across our culture in ways in which that are helpful and that prevent 
prevent and, and support people making decisions that feel safe and, and are good for their bodies overall. And it's definitely, it's clear from both your website and the articles I pulled up that you've written and what you're telling us now is that helping remove that stigma and that shame is is your passion, right? Helping. So what are the sorts of effects that you've seen for that stigma and, and shame has had on our society? Yeah, it actually stops people from getting tested. It actually stops people from using preventative measures and re- oh. reducing overall risk. That's it, dangerous. It is. I mean, the fear, the stigma, the shame all cause harm to overall prevention effort, efforts and harm people as a whole, physically, psychologically, holistically. Right. Mm-hmm. I get this all the time because I'm on TikTok and things and people are like, why are you trying to normalize Normalize STIs. No one wants an STI. And I'm like, I get it. I don't want a new infection. I don't want COVID. I don't want the cold or the flu. Mm-hmm. I don't want anything new or any kind of malady and things. Right. We, we want to be healthy and perfect all the time. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's the ideal scenario. But what you don't want is you don't want to be burned as a witch yeah. for being one of the unlucky ones that happened to receive one, you know? Well, yeah. But, and it's like- but if you're talking about those numbers, if you're saying between 60 and 70 million uh, U.S. citizens, that's a good, like, 20% of our population are living with STIs. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. Yeah, that's one in five. Yes, exactly. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you pointed that out. So it's not that uncommon. It's not that uncommon. (laughs) I I can math. She does the math in the family. (laughs) I love it. Well, and you're right, because that's who has one at this given time, one in five. Not only that, Mm. that's not including the people who had curable infections Mm. or infections that, that your body takes care of on its own over time. So the vast majority of all sexually active people contract an STI at some point, and we're absolutely petrified of it. And again, I don't think anyone's going to be excited to come up to my door and say like, hey, give me your herpes. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm also saying that because this is such a common experience, the shame is causing such psychosocial impacts on people. Right. That that's the long term. It's not even like what people assume that, oh, there's outbreaks or you're going to have physical signs and symptoms and it's hard to manage. Like The actual physical ramifications of all STIs are typically mild for the vast majority of all people. And they're, they're relatively easy to manage depending on your resources and access to healthcare and stuff, which is a whole other conversation, of no, course. Sure right. is. Yeah. But that said, overall, for most folks, unless you are immunocompromised or have other extenuating health circumstances, the likelihood that any STI is going to to cause, as long as it's detected and treated and, and right away, is not going to cause a whole lot of long-term irreparable issues. It's, mm-hmm. it's when they become undetected. It's when we're not getting tested. That's when things go awry. And that's when you do have long-term consequences that can't be um, that can't be remedied at that point in time. Like 15% of all infertility cases are a result of an untreated STI, STIs that are that are curable. Oh, wow. So it's like there are long-term health consequences that we want to mitigate. But if we were talking about this, if it was understood that, yeah, of course, just like the cold or the flu or a cavity or poison ivy, I don't want these things when I'm running around in the summer in my shorts and my flip-flops. But I know they exist. I look out for them while I'm on a trail and hiking and things. And then I handle it and deal with it once it happens. Same with the cavity. I go and do, I go and see my dentist as often as possible. And I brush and floss is probably not as much as I should, you know, like we take all these things (laughs) into consideration and make risk 
risk decisions, but we don't talk like that in a practical, casual, comfortable way about our sexual health. And that is, and that's doing us all a disservice, ourselves as individuals, as well as our partners and, and our general public health at large. Wow. It is interesting to think about how much more damage the social sort of puritanical stigma surrounding it causes, you know, like how much more than the actual infection or the actual disease itself. Yes. Yeah, that's a mind-opening realization, really. Well, I wanted to ask you, because if we're not having real communication with our partners or potential partners, then that's affecting our relationships on a foundational level. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. So with the people that you've helped and in your own life, how has being able to have those open, really courageous conversations, how has that impacted, you know, relationship quality? My personal experience as well as anecdotal for the hundreds and thousands of people that I've helped over the last 10 years and, and directly worked with, it has improved their relationships by far exponentially. I mean, and, and really when you look at it, even though culture we're not encouraged to be vulnerable and to, to take risks. When we are vulnerable and we open ourselves up, that vulnerability breeds connection and intimacy. So not every person and every vulnerable exchange is going to be some epic phenomenal match. And this is platonic and and intimate, um, sexually intimate relationships. Mm-hmm. But as we share parts of ourselves, other people feel safe and heard and available and earned and, and that they, they also can, can do the same and that that can be reciprocal and that they are seen on a level that is much more than just the qualities that we present on a social media page. And mm-hmm. so I think that, that it really does behoove us to open ourselves up and to consider Like, how can we be present and vulnerable in our relationships and share things that may feel very embarrassing, that are mired in shame, especially around sexuality, when everyone has experienced, almost everyone, I should say, almost everyone has experienced some level of sexual shame at some point in their lives. Like Mm -hmm. you were talking about, Marco, Mm -hmm. the puritanical culture and in shame around something to do with their body, their expression of their sexuality, their identity. There's so much commonality in that. And really, even though it seems like this big admonition um, when we're talking about our STI status in particular, it is an exchange of information because we're also curious about someone else's status and what their needs are and their boundaries are. And the more that you are able to talk about that, the more you can connect on a physical, psychological way in Again, like I said, all relationships, platonic as well as intimate and sexually intimate relationships. So yeah, I mean, I really just hands down feel like it is such a gift to be able to have that communication. We just don't have good examples of it, mm-hmm. ways in which that that can be modeled. We're not we, we're not given wonderful and relevant examples very often. In an ideal world, if if you were in charge of this beautiful sexual slash relationship utopia where everyone treats each other the right way, how would that revolve around the issue of STIs? Oh, if I were in charge, wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> 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 I, love, I love that question. That's great. Um, you know, I think it'd be where folks felt comfortable sharing their status with one another, their boundaries around safety, their risk perception at that point in time, because that changes per relationship and each relationship and each relationship dynamic is going to be different. Mm-hmm. Our, our, our risk, um, what do I want to say? Like our risk profile, how we view risk and which risks we're willing to consider that is fluid and changes with relationships with our 
uh, perception of the world around us, our knowledge, our education, etc. So that that is going to be this a fluid thing that would be supported and understood. And then we wouldn't, folks who have an STI wouldn't feel like it is it is a damning end-all, be-all status. And, and that would be supported with conversations that like, thank you so much for sharing. Um, I'm not sure if I want to move forward, but I appreciate that. And and then and then for folks who are considering moving forward, like, okay, well, here are some things that I want to know or I want to talk to you about. Like this mutual ex- exchange, this reciprocal, symbiotic, ongoing way in which we can communicate with one another. I would love to see that more more often. And it doesn't have to be so so big or grandiose. The way in which I'm describing it sounds like, yeah, that's never really going to happen with like our culture, casual hookups and, mm. and things like that. But it can be done via text message. It can be done in a flirty way. It can be fun and it can be authentic to whatever your language is and the way in which you communicate. I just happen to talk in this type of manner, but that doesn't necessarily, is gonna, isn't going to sound the same way for someone else or look the same way. And that's cool. Like I want that to be supported and people to have their own authentic connections and to connect on a level that is less, um, that is less surface and it is a lot deeper and more and more true to what their overall needs and desires and really where they're hoping to go with each relationship. And it can be simple. It can be just as simple. Like, I'm not hoping to go very far. Like, I'm interested in hooking up. Like, this is working out for me. Like, I'm really into you. Let's have sex. Like, are you cool? (laughs) Are you down? And what do we need to talk about before that happens? I mean, however it sounds, you know, like, I'm dorky and getting too old to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to be like representative of all people. And I and I never would consider that or even think that I could be no matter my age or, you know, no ageism, ageism aside and, and my own, um, my own personal take on that. It, it can be, it can happen in a way that really fits what the culture is, but we just need to be thinking about that and, and honoring that and supporting people who are having those conversations. Correct. That is the right answer. Congratulations. <laughs> you win. Yes. <laughs> So now you're in charge. <laughs> yes. You know, we're all under your... Uh, Here's the pin. Put it on. Your dictatorship. It's yours. Of open communication. <laughs> <laughs> Goes on your lapel right now. Oh, my. No, but I was going to ask you. So what, with the people that you help through the SDI project, what are some of the primary like tips and, and techniques that you coach them to use when having those kinds of conversations? Yes. Okay. So here are my how-to tips on how to have a disclosure conversation. In a disclosure conversation, I want to wrap that in the the responsibility and the onus always gets put on the people who have a known infection. Like you absolutely have to disclose before putting it someone at risk and engaging in activities. And while yes, ethically, we want to do that, there's also a shared responsibility when people are engaging and not having those conversations and having a dialogue because we all know some risk is, exists unless you have been living under a rock and just came out and decided to have partnered sex all of a sudden. And so the level of what our awareness is around that is definitely going to be impaired by a lack of comprehensive sex ed and et cetera, all sorts of things culturally. But either way, the responsibility is shared and it's a reciprocal conversation. Like I've mentioned, like we're sharing information, but we also want information in return. And so before putting someone at risk, the person who's doing the disclosure and prompting the conversation, they get to decide which environment is going to be safest for them. And so maybe that's 
in person. Some people really like that, being able to kind of gauge body language and be direct and um, eye contact. But it's also not always safe or practical, especially in these times. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that means via text message and sometimes that means via WhatsApp. I mean, whatever way in which you want to communicate and have the discussion, that's great. Sometimes that's nice too. If you're doing, if you're using technology, of course, things could be shared. So that's always a consideration. But if you're using technology, you give, it allows a little bit of space for people to digest before immediately responding and feeling pressure about that. So I, I like both. I've, I've tried both and I've seen, I've seen scenarios where both work. So mm-hmm. that said, no one has a right to any information about your past and history outside of just what your current status entails and how that may impact that relationship. Mm-hmm. So number of partners you've been with, whom you contracted something from, how you contracted it is really unnecessary and relevant unless that's a part of your story that you want to share. Mm -hmm. Then I like to give a resource or two, like a factual one that just gives the kind of dry clinical stuff of how these things are transmitted and how they're treated. And then usually I like to point someone to a storytelling, more humanizing kind of resource and platform. It doesn't have to be mine, but of course you could you could point people to the STI project. But whatever resonates with you and whomever resonates with you, there are other people sharing this kind of story online too. And, um, and then I like to take a beat. Like there's going to be information you're sharing. You're asking them for information in return, what their status is, and if they'd like to proceed and move forward and are they digging you and because you're digging them. I mean, whatever. However, again, like I said, using your authentic language and your approach. Mm -hmm. And then this is the last. And of course, it's the gem of the whole, like, yeah, that's easier said than done. But we're, we want to do our very best to not take their opinion personal and their response personal. Mm. Like the outcome is more often positive than negative for a large, vast majority of disclosures. And even if it's neutral, no one ever deserves a negative response. So a cruel response. And that just is representative of that individual then. And they're projecting mm. onto you and that in, in in and of itself, that's kind of a gift. And so it's a thank you, but no thanks, because if you're going to respond in this kind of way, that means it wasn't a good fit. But also mm-hmm. then I, still, even if the response is just that it's not going to work for me now, that's representative of where your relationship is at, where they were considering to go with your relationship, the level of connection that they had already um, found in, in you and yours. So it's not necessarily, it, it's first of all, it's not a projection of all future relationships. It's not representative of all future relationships. That's just Good a that specific mind. exchange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's easy to then, yes. And it's so easy to take that and apply it and be like, well, see, here's evidence that no one's going to be okay with me and no one's going to be able to accept this. And <laughs> we find that people with an STI then end up in relationships that are not healthy and then um, tolerate things that are that are not okay for much longer than they would have because their perception is like, you know, this is not going to be something that anybody will ever be okay with. So I just have to accept and settle for yeah. this relationship that is not healthy, rewarding, yeah. pleasurable etc. So anyhow, those are kind of the quick nitty gritty tips on the disclosure conversation. And it's going to look very different for everyone. I think you have to decide when you want to tell if it's upfront right away, or if you want to wait a little bit until you've established a connection. And again, all of those things kind of ebb and flow per each type of relationship and what the dynamic is and what you're hoping for. Is this a short, shorter thing, a hookup, a casual encounter? Or are you looking for a more long-term committed kind of thing? So how you approach it will definitely 
change based on what you're looking for, because that's a priority. People who have an STI are more likely to contract another STI. They're more likely to be harmed uh, as a result psychologically, as a result of sharing this kind of information. And so I'm concerned about and putting the responsibility or and emphasizing disclosure, not because I think the responsibility is solely on the person who has the infection, but because I care about the risk that they're accepting also while engaging in these activities and either not disclosing or accepting things that they wouldn't otherwise were it not for their status. Yeah, it's it's definitely about cutting through the bullshit in a lot of ways. If you can have these really honest conversations, especially closer to the beginning of a relationship, of course, depending on the dynamic and the objectives, it, it really cuts out a lot of the wasting of time and energy on someone who isn't going to be a long-term fit. Well, and you know, I could see it go in both directions because the, the, the game and the flirt and the fun of the new relationship, that new relationship energy, um, the chemicals that are happening at that point in time, that back and forth of a crush, all of that, there's so, such it's such a rewarding and anxiety-laden experience and mm-hmm. that is all wrapped up into this big ball of energy that you're experiencing when that's happening. And so I don't think it needs to be sped up necessarily so that you have this big, important conversation because it can also be snippets of conversations going on. It doesn't have to be a one sit down, we're going to discuss all the things and then we're done. Yeah. Um, in, in, in the best case scenario, it would be ongoing discussions as things and as boundaries and, and expectations change. But mm-hmm. I think it can be, yes, like at one point in time, we eventually get kind of real with it and we and we share stuff that, again, is vulnerable and, and honest and, and very rarely spoken about in these kinds of terms. But I don't think we have to lose the fun of that new experience and that exchange, the flirting, the courting, the seeking out and um, and engaging in that in new dynamic. It doesn't necessarily have to be of course. halted or something, you know? Yeah. No, and, and I apologize if it seemed as though that's what I was suggesting. Uh, Marco has this analogy about kind of testing the waters with vulnerability. Oh, yeah. Um, I tend to say that uh, you're not going to walk into like a swimming pool area in a gymnasium, like in the middle of the dark and jump into the water without, you know, some kind of indication that there is some water to jump into. So uh, for me, it's a gradual approach. When you build uh, that trust mm-hmm. through vulnerability, the the steps by opening yourself up uh, are gradual. You know, at first you volunteer something little about yourself that's mildly uncomfortable and then you see how the response is mm-hmm. and and if the person responded in kind then yeah you can move on to like heavier things and you have if you feel you have heavier things to share and it goes it, it just keeps moving on and on like that it's like the steps on a quest sort of <laughs> yes i absolutely agree yeah that's perfectly said like the vulnerability i like the dipping your toe in and some people put it right on their profile like mm-hmm. i want to get this mm-hmm. over with and i don't even want to but potentially build myself up didn't anticipate an excitement just to potentially have a rejection and that works depending on your personality type I think again it's different by per relationship per time in your life etc and yeah I 100% agree though because no one puts it I've heard this used in in and again it's coming from a place of a lack of empathy a lack of education that oh I can't believe you wouldn't tell someone right away as you started dating them like what a bait and switch what a horrible thing to like dangle out there and not share and I'm like do you tell everybody your worst 
experiences in life? Are you trauma vomiting all over them? I mean, most people have experienced some level of trauma, big T, capital T. Most people have experienced shame. And most people have things they just feel a little weird about or funny, funny parts of their personality or their habits. And you're not telling everybody all that on a first date or even a second. I mean... That's that's just not an organic, natural approach. So oh, it's drama dumping. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Like nobody is going to receive that very well. I mean, it's like, yes, we know you have problems. <laughs> we all have problems. Please it's disclose life, them when not? they're relevant. Other than that, just give me your best Instagram smile. Perfect hat. Perfect beach. Perfect body. <laughs> not. I'm being sarcastic. Right. Right. <laughs> there is, however, like a an appropriate, adequate amount. You know, I think that's where we're in agreement with, and that was my bottom line. It's that progressive line of, you know, the more involved you want to be with someone, the more vulnerable you want to be with them. For sure. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. So what sorts of things are you currently working on? Do you have new projects coming up? What are you super excited about right now? Yes. Uh, two things. I'm the health, uh, I'm the education manager for Health HIV. I just took on that role, which oh. is a full-time remote role. Mm. They're, they are a nonprofit out of Washington, D.C. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's phenomenal. You know, the whole organization is full of these incredible people who are developing quality products for the public, for clinicians, practitioners. And it's refreshing to see an organization work so well together and for there to be not a competitive dynamic in nature involved Mm -hmm. in the ongoing uh, exchanges and working amongst one another and as a team and working on projects like it is just it is it was the best decision I could have made. And after 10 years of working almost entirely for myself, I was ready to step into a role with a larger organization and expand my skill set as well as bring to the table some of what I've learned. So, you know, again, kind of a reciprocal thing. Like, obviously, they hired me because I will aid them. And, and but I also am really looking forward to what I'm going to learn through this experience and in this position. I've been there since December, and it's already shown me that it was a really good decision. Awesome. So that's huge on my plate right now. And then I also just I just launched the Herpes Toolkit, the Managing Herpes Toolkit. Our uh, advisory board finally approved all of the modules, and it's a um, helping people actually get through the symptoms because that's that in and of itself. Like initially, when someone's diagnosed, it's first like if you're experiencing any symptoms, how do I not feel uncomfortable? And you feel gross. You you're psychologically wrapped up in what the stigma entails and what that might mean for you and your identity. And you're mourning a bit of what your perception was around that and how you are going to express your sexuality. And then, but then you're coupled with like, how am I going to manage whatever symptoms I have, even though. Most people are asymptomatic. There are still a fair number who experience symptoms, and the symptoms can be uncomfortable if, the, if you don't have a good plan for managing them. So that's what this is all about, is getting people through that physical so then they can work on the psychological. And I have a couple of programs that were already in place um, for the last year or two that are that are like working on stigma and working on overcoming that and moving forward from and whatever. So yeah, I'm busy, but in a really good way, like a happy busy. <laughs> Some people say busy and they're like, busy isn't always good, but this is the busy that I am right now is really, is really good. Yay, productive busy. I love it. So elucidate a little bit on this herpes toolkit. Can you describe it? What you doing with it? Is it like a list of things to do? Is it a board game? Is it is it an actual toolkit like metal box with 
stuff in it? What is it? That is a great question. It is an online resource that walks through all the different symptoms. In some ways, it is a practical toolkit because there is a um, self-questions that you answer. There's quizzes along the way so that you can determine, am I a person who's going to get a lot of outbreaks? Am I a person who would benefit from daily antivirals? Or mm-hmm. it, maybe I'm a little reticent to have to take a pill every day. How likely is it that my symptoms will dissipate over time? And this is this is different for every person, what their body is, what their um, genital configuration is, what type of infection they have, how long they've had it. There are all these things that you end up answering along the way. And the toolkit walks you through that. Like, here's how to answer these questions. And here's your likelihood of having lots of outbreaks, fewer outbreaks. Here's here's the folks who may benefit from daily prescription. And even if you may benefit from daily prescription, um, it talks about all the different kinds that you can take and walks you through those, as well as it assures the vast majority of people don't end up having to take a pill every day for the whole rest of their lives and how that may entail and what that might look like for you, as well as triggers, what might trigger your symptoms, what how to recognize your symptoms as they're coming on. So prodrome, which is the symptoms before the actual official outbreak and um, and then we talk about holistic. The actually the most fun part I think is the do it yourself. There's a bonus if you're a person who likes a lot of natural approaches and likes to incorporate more holistic methods. We talk about all of the research that has been found so far indicating certain supplements that might be beneficial, different ways you can manage through diet, and then you can make your own tincture, salve, or oil. We also sell it too, that I make it, and so if you don't want to have to do it yourself and buy all the products, but some people really like getting their witch on, and so (laughs) they get in the kitchen and put it all together, and so the recipes are there available. And then what I like the best about it is it's not just a, hey, this is based on my experience and here's what helped my outbreaks. I have a medical advisory board that's walked through all of the content that's vetted all of the research associated and made sure that everything that we're even talking about, of course, we have all the full disclosures around talking to your medical provider and not engaging or participating, or I should say not taking a... um, any kind of supplement until you've consulted with your practitioner. But that said, here's the research. So we walk through all of that. It's really phenomenal. I'm proud of it. I think it's super supportive. I think if I would have loved to have had this kind of information when I was diagnosed. I got nothing. Um, just a prescription for Valtrex. And I was told that my outbreak was the worst that the doctor had ever seen. Oh my God, it was so awful. <laughs> oh, that's that's nice. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Especially at like the tender age of 16. Yeah. Oh, that's painful. Yeah. Not only do you have this taboo infection, this horrible condition that is looked at so poorly, you have the worst version of it. Now you're like the grossest, the dirtiest, the most damaged. Uh. And all those things are core, of course, what I thought and said to myself. It's what every 16-year-old American girl needs to hear at that yeah. particular juncture. Oh, gosh. That is sad. That is sad. Yeah. That just brings to mind the, uh, the, the shame nun from... Uh, from Game of Thrones, shame, 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 ding, shame, you know. ding. It's like, oh, that was so painful. Oh my gosh, yes. That scene in particular, I mean, as a woman and like in our very puritanical society, it's like, oh my God, why? Yeah, I, it, it brought tears yeah. to my eyes watching it. And I don't even love Cersei, you mm-hmm. know, like if you're a Game of Thrones fan, like right. know, there, she was so awful on so many levels, but even yeah. watching her go through that, you know, you could relate. And I think so many people could. Mm-hmm. I mean, it very much, mm-hmm. yeah, hit her nerve for sure. Oh, it was rough. Mm-hmm. So, so that's awesome. We love the fact that you 
the the products that you recommend and and uh, and also make available mm-hmm. are with scientifically backed research. We love that shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if somebody is looking for that toolkit, where can they find it? Yes. Thanks so much for asking. TheSTIproject.com. That'll be the most direct way. Okay. Um, and don't forget the the. Right. TheSTIproject.com. All one word, no dashes or anything like that. The STI Project. And obviously, mm-hmm. listeners, we will have the link in the show notes for you to just click on directly. Yeah. In yeah. fact, this is the point where we ask you to go ahead and plug any project or product that you want to. We'll be happy to. To transpose whatever you say onto the notes as well so that people just scroll down and clickety click. Go ahead and plug yourself all you want right now. Do it. You got five seconds. Oh, that's wonderful. Yay. Okay. So same place, thestiproject.com. I have a couple of free courses. So a workshop around disclosure and rejection, as well as one called how to not give an F that you have an STI or about having an STI. Mm-hmm. And um, those are free. And so you just register. You have to give an email address so that you can get a login for the platform, the learning platform that we put all of our content on and the managing herpes toolkit and then for social media i'm at the sti project across all social media channels easy peasy that's fantastic simply fabulous nice it has been a wonderful time talking with you about these things janelle about liberating this this difficult and puritanically weighted down topic about things that are really just random things that happen to us in our lives that's exactly right biology is a motherfucker biology stupid we're just biomes man we're just like walking (laughs) around we are somebody else's jungle you know and yeah you happen to get a particular kind of ants or somebody gets a particular kind of weird tree fungus in their jungle you know it just uh it that's the way life is. And obviously, we can do things to mitigate those uh, threats, those chances. But, you know, once somebody is in that position, we definitely should have things that we can use to mitigate, like, the shame and the cultural stigma and all of that stuff. Because, again, it, it ain't nobody's fault, really. So, uh, I'm just rambling until Heather cuts me <laughs> off. I was going to say that's so well said. Beautifully said. You're so right. We're just science experiments. We take ourselves more seriously than we really should. And it's not to say that these experiences can't be traumatic and be very serious, but it doesn't have to be the end of the world for us and defining. And so we just want to bring light to it and support and resources. And so I appreciate the opportunity to chat about it with y'all today, Marco and Heather. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It has been a pleasure. Uh, It's been super educational and really happy to share this information with all of our listeners. Yeah. And uh, with any other things you uh, develop in the future and everything, be sure to reach out. Uh, We'd love to continue this conversation. We'd love to continue offering a forum for your fight here because Mm -hmm. it is very important. And it's, you know, such a huge part of building a right relationship is having that kind of openness, vulnerability, that kind of understanding, like even a sense of forgiveness, not just for your partner, but for the culture that made this kind of crappy attitude happen, Mm -hmm. you know, so... You bring it back anytime you want to. Yes, please. It would be my pleasure. Absolutely. You let me know. And when it's live, I will share this across all of my platforms, too. So please let me know how I can support y'all. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Chanel. We'll talk to you soon. Wow. 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 That was an eye-opening conversation, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. A lot of information in there. There's a lot of information. Uh, One of the things that really struck me the most was about how there could be, like, even more damage to a person from the social stigma. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. than there is from the infection itself. Absolutely. Like, which one is more terrible? Well, and it's how the social stigma really informs the infection and the infection rate and whether or not symptoms are understood or caught and, and like, duh. If, if we're able to have honest and open communication from the get-go and realize that it's not such a terrible thing, it's just something to be addressed Yeah. and then managed. There's also this weird dichotomy that struck me about how the national statistics can be like all sensationalized you know Mm -hmm. Uh, even though like there's like this big old like panic and sensationalism happening in the statistics but the response itself like the clinical response the social response is usually pretty lackluster right it's something that really aggravates me about american media and about our society in a lot of ways that we can be so fear-based but what about follow through and again managing it addressing it and managing it well fear sells truck ads (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, for me, that's how it is. Because it's so sensationalized and everything, like there's this lack of realism. If the topic could see the light of day, you'd see a more realistic attitude from people. Yeah, if we could have a more sensible approach and just get down to the point of, hey, let's have a conversation. Mm -hmm. These are things that happen, ways to avoid or ways to treat or just understanding your life and how to manage it. Here's the thing about me that you need to know. Yeah, and it's not even just the conversation between partners or potential partners, it's the conversation on a national level. Things to understand, and it's okay. Mm -hmm. Because on a realistic level, yeah, it probably isn't going to be a deal breaker. It's just a thing to know about someone. It's a thing to know. It's like somebody... Probably about as bothersome as just them snoring. Or lactose intolerant. Exactly. Like... Somebody eats ice cream, you know, his stomach gets rumbly and he might sleep on the sofa and instead of in And that's when I sleep bed. on the sofa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but really, I mean, it can be as innocuous as that. Mm-hmm. It's it's only that weird sexual guilt and stigma that makes it anything more blown out than that. And just that statistic of that probably 20% of Americans currently have an STI. You yeah. invite 10 people to dinner at your house, two of them have got something. Most likely. Most likely. And it's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and honestly, having access to resources mm-hmm. really is the key. Yeah. Janelle's herpes toolkit could just be what people need in order to understand and gain control and manage these symptoms and outbreaks and also their social standing. 100%. Yeah, I highly recommend checking out her website. It is the sti-project.com. We have the link in the show description along with the sti-project.education slash herpes-toolkit. Again, that's in the uh, description below. Yeah, and whether you're a sufferer or not, bring out this topic to the light of day because most likely you have several friends who have the same story going on. Maybe they could benefit from some help and some understanding. If they're living in darkness and shame about it, it's a good idea to just reach in and say, here, have a herpes toolkit. (laughs) I love you, man. Love you, man. (laughs) Or person. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you for joining us. And remember, you can reach us on that digital old folks home for perennially angry people Facebook at <laughs> facebook.com slash how to love forever and Instagram at how to numeral two love forever. We really want to hear your feedback and what you would like for us to cover. Also, reach out if you have a story to share and you would like to be a guest on the podcast. We even have a private mode if you want to share your story but you wish to remain anonymous. Tell us about it, Heather. <laughs> 
Well, you know, we can do it Dear Abby style and read your story or questions in the podcast without any true names revealed. We'll just make up some really funny ones for you. <laughs> yeah, we will. You can email us directly at contact at howtoloveforever.com. Don't be shy. We don't bite. Without, without consent. consent. And if you feel that the show provides some value, is good for the world, or just plain entertaining, there are so many ways to show your support. You can leave a review and positive comment on your podcast app of choice. It definitely helps the show grow. And tell all your friends to listen in. You know we want to touch the world, baby. With consent. With consent. Also, if you want to be our sugar daddy or sugar mama, you can join our supporter community on Patreon. Patreon! We have a range of supporter levels to choose from starting at just $3 a month. Three dollars a month i know that's less than the price of the average trip to outer space oh my goodness what do you get well you get early access Mm. you get extra content (gasps) yeah you get like behind the scenes looks at our processes you get full video versions of interviews like this one and more so check us out at patreon.com slash how to love forever next week we dive into deep waters and explore trauma pain and hardship and we have an honest conversation about how you can best navigate them within your own relationships yeah it's a lot more fun than it sounds Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah and it's the first part of a two-part set and it's all about getting through the rough times by using them to create some of the best internal growth Mm -hmm. you know kind of rising from the ashes kind of thing so why don't you tune in next week for the first part and until then remember love deep love hard love love forever forever. what was that two part one part two part who's on first (laughs) what's on second it's not that hard i don't know who's on third it's one part of two part and the part of the party the party of the first part with the party of the second and part part. to the left and (laughs) i whip my hair back and forth i whip whip my my hair hair back and forth forth. i whip my hair back and forth you're totally not gonna be able to play that yeah